I'm with Wing Lamb, co-owner of Wahoo's Fish Taco, and Father Scott Borgman, judicial vicar of the Diocese of Orange. And uh, Father, I understand you have some insight on Wahoo's. Well, thanks, Mike. I just thought about how much Jesus loved fish. We were always seeing him around the Sea of Galilee with his closest followers. So yeah. I think, you know, if it was Lent and it was today and Jesus were here, he'd be at Wahoo's Fish Tacos. <laughs> Locations all over the place. Go to wahoos.com for the location nearest you. Welcome to the Orange County Catholic Radio Show on AM 1000 in Orange and San Diego counties and on AM 930 in Los Angeles County. Each week, we bring you compelling conversation with church leaders and laity, talking about the things going on in our diocese and discussing the important issues that impact the world around us. We're coming to you through the good offices of Relevant Radio from our studios on the campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. Here now to introduce our guest and today's topic is your host, Rick Howick. And welcome to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And with me today are two very special guests from an organization known as CASA, which is the Court-Appointed Special Advocates Program for Children. And we're going to explain all the wonderful things that they do for our children those that are especially in great need. And the two people who are going to talk to us today are Matthew Wadlinger. Welcome. Thank you. And Veronica Cincinnati. Welcome. Thank you. And before we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Dear Lord, we ask you to be with us, helping us to do your will and granting us all your peace. We ask you to open our eyes, our arms, and our hearts and ears so that we might hear your voice calling us to do more for our children. Let all who are listening today hear a little bit of your mission of mercy in the lives of the kids that we touch and those that are touched by CASA. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Now, rather than me say all that again, let me just ask you, Matthew, mm -hmm. uh, you're the chief communication officer for CASA. Mm -hmm. All I know about CASA is the Spanish name for house. <laughs> <laughs> so what is CASA? here in the Diocese of Orange. Yeah, yeah. So CASA is an acronym. It stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. And our mission and what we uh, hope to accomplish is we recruit, train, supervise community volunteers, and then we match them up with one specific child in the foster care system here in Orange mm -hmm. County. Um, that volunteer will mentor the child and also advocate for their needs in team meetings and most specifically um, in court. Um, all kids in the foster care system have periodic review hearings that happen twice a year. And so our volunteers will attend those hearings and advocate for the child's needs. Essentially, they're the voice of the child in the courtroom. So here in Orange County, there's 3,100 kids that are in the foster care system. Um, every year we work with over 700 of these kids the children that are referred to us are most typically kids that have this label of being LTFC, which stands for long-term foster care. So we're typically not going to be working with a kid that's going to be quickly reunifying back with mom or dad. We're going to be working with the kids that are going to be in care for a longer period of time and kids that, that need um, services and support. So if we're looking at what your focus is in this mission, of all the kids that are in foster care, and that's thousands of kids, mm -hmm. I, I wasn't aware of how many there are, mm -hmm. but you're talking about these are the kids who are long-term, these are kids whose families have a significant problem that these kids have endured, mm -hmm. and so these are kids that are in most need of having help, and one of the pieces of the 
puzzle that's put together to help them is is your organization. Yeah. So the people that are involved in CASA, uh, the volunteers, I, I know, for example, Veronica, you're now a, a supervisor of volunteers, but you started off as a volunteer. What do volunteers do? And, I, and we'll get to some of your stories in a minute, but just in general, what did they actually do? Yes, our volunteers meet with the children at least twice a month. They take them out on outings, uh, involve them in activities in the community, basically allow them uh, the opportunity to be children, to experience uh, normal things that kids experience, which are not readily available to kids that are in the foster care system. This reminds me a little of some of what's done in what we've called the Big Brother program. Mm -hmm. Correct. Are there parallels to that in some of what you do then? Yes, there are parallels. Okay. Uh, the difference with CASA is that we're not only mentors, but also advocates. So a CASA, I heard someone say one day, it's like a big brother, big sister, but with teeth. Oh. <laughs> and what that means <laughs> is that you have a voice, you represent the voice of the child at the table mm -hmm. so that you actually can make recommendations based on your observations of the circumstances of the child. So besides having fun with the kids and building relationship, CASAs are called to be the eyes of the judge on the ground. So they monitor the placement. They make sure that all their basic needs are met. They ensure that their rights are, are met also, that children are not falling through the cracks. One of the big pieces of advocacy that we do is education. So a lot of the kids that come to us have uh, needs in the educational field. So we monitor that. Uh, we find out why they're failing classes. We make recommendations for tutoring, uh, connect them with the resources that they need to be connected with so that they can be successful. This almost sounds scary. Not, not that I want to <laughs> emphasize that somehow that people should shy away from this, mm -hmm. but it sounds almost like you have to have a law degree along with a sociology <laughs> degree um, and perhaps a master's in education. <laughs> So I, I take it it's all. not it's not that. So not at all. We offer extensive training to our casas to start thirty hours before you are presented with the case or accepted into the program. So you have to complete thirty hours. You have to have a background check and you have to go through fingerprinting, an interview process. But you get a lot of support. As a as a volunteer, I started just exploring what CASA was all about. And then the more I found out about it, the more I fell in love with the program because you do get the support that you need to do the role that you're called to do. So, Matthew, let's go back to the program for mm -hmm. a moment because mm -hmm. I'm dying to, to get back into Veronica's actual story, but not yet. We're going to hold off on that for a minute. I want to go back to the program itself. Mm -hmm. So throw out some some numbers or, or some, some successes here. What is the program doing and to whom and how successful has it been? Mm -hmm. In the Orange County area. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the the biggest area where we definitely have um, the quantitative quantitative numbers to kind of prove our effectiveness is that um, it's fifty three percent of kids in the foster care system will graduate from high school. If a child has um, a CASA volunteer, that wow. number hold, goes. Hold on just a second. Let's mm -hmm. start. Let's not move past the bad news. Just mm -hmm. yet. Yeah. You said fifty three percent. So so almost half of the kids who enter foster care. Yeah. Do not graduate, graduate from, from high school. school. Correct. Wow. That's yeah. Really really sad. And if uh, a child has a CASA volunteer working with them, that number goes up to ninety two percent. Wow. Yeah. 
Okay. And so to Veronica's point, I think um, the areas surrounding education are where we've been able to kind of show our um, biggest effectiveness in, in transforming these kids' lives. And then the other stats are that 80% of the prison population is made up of people that were at one time in the foster care system. Did you say 80%? 80%. 80% yep. were from homes that were already f- yep. problematic. Yep. And yep. they were in the foster care system. Yep. And what's the statistics for those who come to the well? Hospital? Yeah, so so we obviously we don't have a number kind of saying what the difference is there, um, but it is proven that if a, if a young adult in foster care system has their high school diploma, that they are less likely to get into drugs, criminal behavior. They are more likely to be employed, um, to have stable housing. So all those things just naturally stem from a child graduating from high school. And so our advocates are able to really ensure that the child is getting their education and then they encourage the child to gain employment or to go on to potentially community college, a trade school, or some of our kids to go on to a university or college. Where are you set up? We're in Santa Ana is where our offices are based out of, um, and that's where we hold our trainings and our information sessions for people that are interested in joining our program. Um, and then the majority of the kids in the foster care system live in Santa Ana, Orange, um, Tustin, um, and Anaheim. Those are the, the four towns here in Orange County that have the highest population of youth. Those are also the towns that have <clears throat> socioeconomic uh, lower level for Orange County. Yeah, yeah, and so there, yeah, there is a little bit to to be said to that point. Um, but kids, you know, every month social services comes out with a report that says, you know, where the kids are placed and where they're being pulled from, and it is from every single town um, okay. in the county. Let me ask you what kind of a staff you've got down there. Is this a storefront with five people? <laughs> no, no, no. What's what's going on at this place? Yeah, yeah. So we um, we're a staff of thirty three. Um, oh, wow, that's currently, a, yeah, that's yeah. a good size group. Yeah, yeah, and we are growing. We have five hundred active matches right now between oh, wow. yeah between a volunteer and and a child in the foster care system, and we're growing right now. Um, but we have two hundred and twenty five kids on a wait list right oh, wow. now as well. So so there's a need. So there's to, good news, bad news. Yeah, yeah. So there is a need to gain more volunteers and um, we're in a good spot financially right now to support um, hiring more staff if we need to to support um, an influx of volunteers which is our goal now this is a non-profit organization it's not a government-run organization correct you get a some money from the government mm-hmm. through some of the stuff that they do but it, you were saying it's less than 10 percent. yeah it's less than 10 percent. it's about six percent right now and the money is funneled through um the judicial council that comes in through the state um but yeah we are um privately funded so we do have i believe five staff members right now that are within our advancement department development that fundraise um a little over three million dollars to keep our doors open every so it's day. a 5013c Correct. so yep. i don't know enough about the tax law changes that took place recently but mm-hmm. For what it's worth, it is a 5013C. It, absolutely, that yeah. It has the potential for being tax deductible. Right, tax. yeah. So I think I think a lot of people will come to us and hopefully they can give their time and, and become a volunteer and mentor youth. Um, but for people that are unable to do that and they want to be a part of our organization, giving financially is also very much appreciated and needed. <laughs> yep. Time, talent, and treasure. Mm-hmm. Don't forget the treasure part. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Okay. So let me ask this then. You've got a, a staff of 33. Mm-hmm. You are a communications kind of a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you, Veronica, you're kind of in supervisory. How many supervisors are involved? You've got 500 people that you're serving. Right. How many? Uh, I think currently we have 15 supervisors. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And then, so that's about half the staff mm-hmm. are the supervisors. Yep. 
So you're basically using the volunteers to to make contact and work with the kids. Yes. So they're not in your offices other than to show up to to have conversations. But you have then 15 supervisors. Who, who are the rest of the people and what do they do? So we have a, a training department made up of a couple folks. And so they oversee the 30 hours of mandated training that all the volunteers go through. Okay, that's um, true. Because you, Veronica, would not be able to do a lot of training if you're out supervising all the kids. Yeah. But I take it you show up for some of those training sessions to give them the real deal and what it's like. Yes, okay. yes. We utilize our in-house staff to conduct most of the trainings. Uh, besides the uh, core trainings, we have ongoing mandated continued education for our advocates. Okay. And then what else do you have? Yeah, so we have uh, people that are working on the volunteer recruitment, obviously recruiting volunteers. I assist with that. I oversee that as well. Um, And then our executive management team. So we have managers at different different levels as well um, that supervise our case supervisors, one of which is Veronica here today. Okay, so you've got somebody who's going to be supervising you, Veronica. Mm -hmm. You've got someone who's going to be supervising what the operations are. Mm -hmm. You've got someone who's looking at the money and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So if people are interested in getting involved with this, and we'll give this number out again, but mm-hmm. if there's, is there information? Because you need to have especially money and volunteers, if I'm mm-hmm. hearing you right. Correct, yes. So how would people uh, contact you to find out more information about this? Yeah, so the the best place to go would be to our website, casaoc.org, C-A-S-A-O-C.org. And right on the main page, you'll see there's kind of two paths you can go on. One is to give um, and one is to volunteer. So if people are interested in volunteering, we have information sessions probably about two to three um, a month right now. And those are, again, at our offices in Santa Ana. So um, you could sign up for one of those information sessions on our website. And then if you were to click the Give button there, there's um, different ways that you could give to our organization, whether that be attending one of our fundraising events, just giving a straight donation there. And then there's other options that we have, programs where you could donate your car or um, just uh, find other ways to contribute um, financially. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at the website right now. It was very easy to pull up. So it's casaoc.org, not .com, not .net, .org. Correct, yep. Casaoc.org, mm-hmm. and uh, it has, it's a very easy-looking website. Okay, when we come back, I want to go a little further in below the surface here on what it's been like for you to actually work nuts and bolts with these kids. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today is Matthew Wadlinger and Veronica Sansonetti, and they are from CASA, the Court-Appointed Special Advocates for Children for Orange County, and they're helping out kids who are most in need of help. And when we come back, we're going to find out more about some of those kids they've helped. And we will be right back. Join us for Catholic Night at Honda Center on Friday evening, March 22nd, as we watch the Ducks take on the San Jose Sharks at 7 p.m. Your game ticket will include access to the Catholic Trinity Hockey League skills competition following the Ducks game. The first 1,000 tickets purchased through our special offer will include a limited edition Anaheim Ducks Catholic Night hat. To purchase tickets starting at only $29, visit AnaheimDucks.com slash Catholic Night. That's AnaheimDucks.com forward slash Catholic Night. This is Lee Sweeney, Executive Director of the Shroud Center of Southern California, and I'd like to invite you to an exciting event coming up Saturday, April 13th at 7 p.m. at Christ Cathedral. We'll be hosting an amazing talk by two of the top world's experts on the Shroud, Father Robert Spitzer and Barry Schwartz. This is going to be an exciting event, talking about the Shroud of Turin. For more information about how to attend this event, go to ShroudCenter.com. That's ShroudCenter.com. We hope to see you there.
And welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, coming to you high atop the Tower of Hope, where Catholic faith is crystal clear. And today we're talking to a couple of people who are actually not from one of the organizations that is uh, governed by our diocese, but an organization that takes place in Orange County that helps a lot of children who are in our diocese, children who are most in need of having a little bit of help from a mentor-type person and an advocate, as it was said by Veronica in our last section, a brother or sister with teeth. Uh, that's that's good. So with that in mind, I want to go a little bit more into this organization. We've been talking to Matthew and Veronica about CASA, and again, CASA is an organization to help foster care kids. Well, you mentioned there are two types of foster care kids, those that are in the system for a short term because there's a, a glitch in the road of their family life. Mm-hmm. And those that are in more long-term, those that have some more serious problems, often abused, mm-hmm. other issues that are going on. So the placement's going to be long-served. And those are the kids that are most at risk in our community for not doing well in life, the ones who often go into prison. You said 80% of people in prison today were part of the foster care system. Mm-hmm. Correct. And many of these kids don't graduate from high school. Only 53% mm-hmm. graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. But the people who get involved with some sort of a mentor like CASA, the CASA statistics are phenomenal. And educationally, you were saying uh, over 90% of the kids that are involved graduate. Yeah. So this is a fantastic program. I want to know a little bit more about how this has manifested itself. Mm -hmm. Have both of you been involved at different levels of this? I know, Veronica, you've been involved. You kind of come up through the ranks, so to speak, as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. Yes, I I became a volunteer, started my training in 2010, and uh, it was out of just a desire to, what you said earlier, use your talents, your time, your treasures to help others. At that time in my life, I just had the space to do it, the, the time to do it, and so I started exploring with a friend, and after the info session, we were hooked. We wanted to know more. Now, now, what actually got you interested in this group? There are 8 billion places that would love to have your time, talent, and treasure. So what got you deciding to look into this organization? Yes, I, you know, the statistics spoke to me. And then the means by which we can bring effect were phenomenal because we get access to mentor the kids, to be one-on-one with them, but then actually make a change for them, you know, work to create change in their lives. So there are organizations where you can volunteer and have that mentorship relationship. But what about you? What, what got, Me, what, what personally. Hooked, yeah, what hooked you on it? Did you come from a background where, I mean, what did you do? Did, were you a sociologist? Were you a teacher? Were no, you- I like to tell my story because it really helps others see themselves that it's possible for them to become a CASA. I was born in Guatemala and was an immigrant. Bienvenidos uh, aquí. Gracias. <laughs> immigrant for 30-some years and um, raised two kids. And I just wanted to see other kids have those opportunities. Being wow. able to speak Spanish yeah. also uh, was uh, something that I felt I could use to benefit uh, the organization as a volunteer. Just the understanding of the culture also. Uh, so the, those things, I, f- I felt that CASA was a good fit for me okay. and just a desire to help kids. I love kids. And I was always involved with kids in one way or another. How long so, ago did you get started as a volunteer? 
in 2010. 2010. Okay, that's that's not that long ago. So 2010, you got involved. And back then, did they train you the same way they do today? Was Pretty it a little much. bit different? So you had to go through the 30-ish hours of, of training. What did you go through? What was it like? Well, it was eye-opening. I um, Is it mostly lecture and know. seminar type? type of approach or yes and some hands-on workshops as well okay uh interactive workshops one of the exercises that uh we still do is we really get the trainees involved in certain type of games to help them see themselves what would their their life be like if they were in the shoes of one of these children where for no fault of their own they find themselves in situations that uh, will affect them for the rest of their lives. And how can they come out of that? And so one of the things that we do really well at training, I think, is equip the advocates so that they are empowering the kids. So the advocate commits for two years to be part of the this child's life. Some advocates stay longer, yeah. you know. But, uh, but there if you're is all, a need for stability for the kids. A, yeah, a casa becomes um, a way of permanency for the kids. Okay. Because they are used to changing social workers and foster homes and schools, and they move on average, I know in my own caseload, on average three or four times a year. So, wow. So, so the would... CASAs are the person that will follow them wherever they go. And so the CASAs will we coach them so that they empower the kids. A CASA doesn't come and save the kids themselves. Yeah. We want to utilize the systems around this child's life and empower the, the children and the youth to access the resources around them. So Buena Casa is not there anymore. The kids have learned skills to, to make it through. Okay, no names or locations, but let's let's talk a little bit about what happened with you early on. So your first case, how did that work? And they just gave you one to start with, or how does that work? Yes. How did uh, that work for you? We always match uh, volunteers with one one child, okay. two max on special circumstances. But in my case, I was matched with a teen girl who only spoke Spanish, okay. uh, had recently come to the States, and she found herself in a very uh, difficult situation, um, soon to become a mom. Okay. And so I was fortunate to walk with her through um, about R- a roughly year. Roughly how old was she? About 16. About 16, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 hard to be an unwed mother at any age. Sixteen is is really difficult. Yes, and then to not have the family around makes it even more so. So you're brought into this situation, and your role was what? What did you end up doing for with this teen? My role was to connect her with resources and to be there for support as a young mother. Uh, need support. I was there to support her. I was there to encourage her. And I was there to make sure that she was able to access resources. And she had the challenge of not being able to speak the language here. And so there were many, many barriers that she had to um, overcome. But she did. And my role was just to be there and then tell the court what her needs were and tell the court and work with the social worker to bring to light the needs that I thought she had and address those needs and find ways to meet those needs. How was your role different from a social worker's role then? Well, the social worker works with the entire family. 
The CASA works only with the child. Okay, your job is to be selfishly focused on just the child. Yes. And the social worker is there to empower everybody. So you're not at odds with each other, but you've got no. different focuses on how yes. to make this engine run. Yes. Okay. Yes, you, we, our, our goal is to look after the best interest of the child. Right, which is a, it's a wonderful phrase. How that plays out is often where the where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Yeah. So you're not, if you're only there a couple of days and your focus really is to try to get resources to this child, your job is not to be a surrogate mom then. No. Your job is to make sure that the emotional needs are being met, the social needs are being met, the physical needs are being met, the legal needs are being met. So you're kind of an eyes and ears for the whole program for the child. Correct. Yes, that's a balance that we have to keep as advocates because it is, it can be an emotional um, situation where uh, you, your heart breaks for the kids. And we always have to keep an objective view and we always have to uh, abide by the guidelines and boundaries that we have as CASA. So one of the things that we cannot do is bring them to our homes. Okay. So, um, so we do have boundaries that have been put in place and, and the role is designed so that our advocates don't get burned out and our lives don't get enmeshed with the kids and we start to lose our focus. So we are focused on the children and on making sure that their needs are being met. So they've kind of done a divide and conquer approach. So not any one person is tempted to kind of fall into a rescuer's role, yes. which psychologically could become very draining very quickly. Yes. Your job is to make sure that the grease and glue is happening at all the different levels yes. and everything is running smoothly. So in your case, how long did that relationship last for this child? Did, it, did you have her for the full two years or was this, how, how did that actually play out for you? Yes. Another challenge on the case was uh, that she was out of county. So she okay. was in L.A. County. So eventually she got really busy with uh, finishing high school and being a mom. So there was Doing normal that, things. That's a good thing. Doing normal things, yeah. That's a good thing. So we, we got distant a little bit, uh-huh. and uh, eventually I came off the case. She didn't need a CASA anymore. Okay. Um, but I was there on the date that she emancipated from court, okay. turned 21. She is an excellent mom, and she actually recently bought a house. Okay, so let's back up for a moment. So she was about 16-ish when yes. she first met her, and you stayed with her through 21 when she was out of the system, and you're still in contact with her to this day to know that she's bought a house. Yes. So you you don't become enmeshed, but you do become good friends. Yes. Or at least you can. Yes, you can become good friends, a lifelong connections, we call them. Okay. So we want our kids to know that after they emancipate, they still have someone in the, they can still reach out to their uh, former CASAs. And we have great stories where one of my coworkers shared that uh, the gentleman that was um, matched with this young man received an email asking this gentleman to be the best man at the young men's wedding. Oh, wow. So stories like that really speak loudly about the emotional connections that can be formed and sometimes are formed. Well, it sounds like it, it was formed there for you with your first case. Yeah. So I'm glad to hear that. We don't really have time to bring up another case just yet, but how long into your first case before they decided it's time for you to have a second case? 
did they did that was it after the two years was it you said from 16 to 21 that's five years so was there another case in there as well how did that at what stage did that work? okay so the first case only lasted about a year and a half okay as an official casa. Okay. After that, we just transitioned to being friends. Okay. After that, I had another case that was very short. Okay. Um, circumstances were that the child had ex- a huge family, and the family came together, and oh, uh, there was no need for a casa hmm. at that point. And then my third case, I was with this young young boy for three years, and... Um, his case closed when he turned 18. I want to talk a little bit more then about how that all transitioned out, but this sounds wonderful. So you were able to have an official function in this young woman's life and then stayed friends with her for yes. for the last several years. Yes. Wow. This is a great program. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. And with me today are Veronica Cincinnati and Matthew Wadlinger. And Matthew, when we come back, I'm going to ask you what your role has been in this. And we will be right back. I'm here with co-owner of Wahoo's Fish Taco, Wing Lamb, and Father Scott Borgman, judicial vicar of the Diocese of Orange. Father Scott, you have a few thoughts about Wahoo's. Well, I think Wahoo's Fish Tacos has effectively ruined Lent for everyone because it's so great. I think Mark Twain said it well when he said, Do not tell fish stories where the people know you, but particularly don't tell them where they know the fish. (laughs) Go to wahoos.com for the location nearest you. Thank you, Father. Friends, this is Deacon Steve Greco on Empowered by the Spirit, and we have a very special message and a very exciting event coming up. A Divine Mercy Conference, Saturday, April 13th from 9.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. at Santiago de Capistela Parish Hall, located at 21682 Lake Forest Drive in Lake Forest, California. This event is going to be transformative. I will be speaking along with Father Ed Broom, Father Jacob, Kathleen Beckman, Donna Lee, Annette Hills. It'll be an absolutely amazing event to teach us more about how much God loves us through his mercy. For more information, contact Katie at spiritfulhearts.org. That's K-A-T-I-E at spiritfulhearts.org or call at 949-514-5028. God bless you all. And welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, coming to you from the beautiful campus of Christ Cathedral in Garden Grove. And with me today are two members of CASA, which is the Court-Appointed Special Advocates for Children. When you start using the word court, I'm kind of glad you chose to use the acronym CASA. It just kind of puts you off to have the word court there. But it's a nonprofit organization who benefits some of our most at-risk kids, and it is designed to work with kids who are in the foster care system, those kids who are not in it for a short period of time, but those long-term cases who have had and will need to have long-term support beyond just having a a foster family, which can change quite often in a child's life, beyond having a therapist and beyond having a social worker, someone who can make sure that all the parts are working over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what CASA does. Did I get that right, Matthew? Correct, yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, we were just listening to Veronica's uh, early story, and I want to come back, because you've been with CASA now for nine years or so, it sounds like, Veronica. Uh, and so you've got lots more to talk about. 
Matthew, how long ago did you join up with Cox? I started in 2010 as a staff member. Okay, yeah. so there as yeah. well from about the same amount of time. Right. You're now involved with putting the face forward on the organization, so you're able to, to get it out there, like radio programs. That Correct, good. yeah, yeah. But... You didn't start off that way. How did you get involved with CASA? No, yeah. So I, um, I, I got my master's degree in justice studies, and, and the focus of my education was on juvenile delinquency. Um, so okay, so let me back up for a mm-hmm. moment. So, Veronica, you were one of the examples of just someone out there who was interested, no special training at all, and you actually had a lifelong interest in this kind of a topic, right? And here you found a practical application. And so, yeah. what happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, my studies and what I, I was planning on doing was to become a juvenile probation officer. Um, so when I got out of school, um, that's where I was working at a juvenile detention facility in New Hampshire. Um, oh, where in New Hampshire? It's in Manchester, New Hampshire. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then um, from there, I realized pretty quickly on that um, the one-on-one work with the kids wasn't exactly my forte, but I liked working on behalf of kids and affecting change there, and I generally had an interest in, in helping these youth. That's an important, youth. I think that's an important thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, your role as a CASA person isn't necessarily to be a day-to-day companion for this person. And in fact, you're only involved every couple of weeks, mm-hmm. it sounds like. Yeah. But your job is to make sure that other people are involved day-to-day successfully with this child. Right. So it's not a matter of, are you really good with kids? No. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's yeah, important we, to know. Yeah, and we do have a lot of people that, that will come to us and question, you know, I'm not a parent myself, you know, I don't have much interaction with kids, how can I take on this role? And, and to that end, I think that our training really does equip people in being able to work with a child that's, um, you know, gone through substantial amounts of trauma, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Um, something has led that kid to the situation that they're now in the foster care system. And so I think I'm really incredibly proud of our training program and, and how we equip our volunteers with the tools to kind of take on this role. Okay, so let's go back to you then. So about nine years ago or so, you got involved. You just inquired? How did you yeah. find out about this? Was it through your education? You're in New Hampshire. Yeah, yeah. Did they have one out there? Yes, they did. Yeah, so CASA is a national agency. There's almost a 1,000 CASA agencies across the country. There's a CASA agency in almost every um, county here in California. Okay. And so I was aware of it. There was actually someone in my grad school program in my cohort um, that interned at CASA. So I was aware of the program. And then I myself was working at Big Brothers Big Sisters as well. So... I was kind of falling in love with working at nonprofits, working with volunteers, doing this line of work. And when I moved out here to California, there was um, a job opening at CASA, an entry-level position. And so I kind of got in there at that level. And then um, and then eventually I oversaw a program that we have called Family Connections, where we do family-finding work for kids in the foster care system. What What does that mean? Yeah, yeah. So we essentially are looking for long-lost family members of these kids and um, bringing them into the fold to have a relationship with that child. We're not reaching out to people necessarily looking for placement um, for the kid, um, although that is a, is a great thing when that happens, but just about bringing people into the fold, into the child's life, so potentially the CASA isn't the only person that's visiting that child or calling them at their group home or foster home and asking them how they're doing today. If for a lot of our kids, almost every person in their life that's asking them how are you doing today? Is paid to do so. The social worker, the attorney, group home staff, foster parents, their teachers, guidance counselors, everyone, except for this CASA volunteer. Um, but then in addition, one of the things that the CASAs are doing are they're kind of monitoring this. And so, for instance, if Veronica's working with a CASA and, um, and the CASA saying, you know, I'm the only person showing up for this kid, you know, every two weeks, 
and there's no family involved in their life whatsoever, you know, and the kid maybe has no relationship with paternal family. That's that's kind of a more typical thing to happen. Um, then they can make referral to this program, and then we will look for long lost family members potentially. Potentially, it's just first degree relatives, maybe dad or dad's family, and then sometimes we're looking in a second, third, fourth degree relatives. Okay, let's mm-hmm. let's, let's back up for a yep. moment. So, when you say it's normal, the paternal, in other words, you're saying like a single mom has had a child, and now the single mom no longer is able to take care of the child for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Either she's gone off to jail, or there's some other drug issue, or whatever. Correct. Yeah. So now the father who has not been involved with the child's life. You're going to do some research to find out what? Yeah, yeah, who, who they are and how I they're doing. I can see some real red flags to that yeah, program real, real quick. And there definitely is. But what we say is that the kids have the dignity of knowing this, as do the paternal family as well. Um, so, yeah, potentially, you know, dad maybe doesn't even know that this child was born into the world, potentially, or doesn't know that this kid is now in the foster care system. And then, in addition, a lot of these people have family members themselves. And so if dad isn't in his place to maybe take care of this kid or they're um, not going to be a good positive connection to the youth. Um, potentially, there's family members um, that that are related to dad that we could bring into the fold. And so, you know, what we say sometimes is that we shouldn't judge the whole tree because there's one bad apple in it. Right. Um, so, you know, I, and I think most people in their families can kind of see that there is usually one black sheep, you know, in their big family. There's someone <laughs> there's someone that's maybe the little bit of the black sheep. And so just imagine that, and you there's know, some families where there's an awful lot of black. Yeah. Sheep in, uh, with the one little, yeah, little yeah. black fold. And, and so, you know, you just imagine like, you know, your cousin Alice that, you know, no one's heard or seen from in 10 years. Well, Alice got into some drugs and her kid got pulled and is now in the foster care system. And, you know, the rest of the family might not even know that this child was ever even born, let alone that they're in the foster care system. And so we can begin to reach out to those people and then in a therapeutic way, kind of slowly bring them into the fold, into the child's life if things check out. Okay. So you're looking at safely checking on all of these things. If there's problems, do you let everyone know this is happening, but no, we don't want you involved or... That could get really sticky, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we never bring the relative into the fold completely until we're at a point where we're really comfortable that we can trust them and the social worker has signed off on allowing that to happen. So, again, what we do is kind of exploratory phone calls with these people and just kind of see how much they know, see where they're at in their life, and then kind of see what their interest is in the child. We don't want to bring someone into the fold if they're going to fade away quickly. So we kind of do a lot of due diligence there first. Now, you mentioned as well that there's a court side of this that you're going to show up. How is that role different than what some states use as what's called a guardian ad litem? How is this different from that, or is it different from that? It's not terribly different. It's it's a similar program, but I would say the the mentoring side of it is probably where it's um, most different. You know, guardian ad litems, yeah, they're, they're going to be advocating for the kid in the court and making sure that... What they're I, usually lawyers. Y- yeah, 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 or have some sort of legal background. And it's really making sure that whatever the court is putting forth at those hearings is being followed through with where our volunteers are doing that, but then they're also mentoring the child. They're actually directly. And and they're also making suggestions as to what they want to see happen. Absolutely. Where the guardian ad litem is not necessarily doing a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a little bit. I mean, I think it just depends on the team around the child and, and, um, and what they're focused in on. Okay. So you don't have to have a a law background to do this though. So when you have a child that's going before the foster judge, the foster judge knows your program. They know that the CASA person is going to be a non-lawyer. The judge is very kind to the CASA person. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the CASA person, is there a report they fill out or their forms they do yeah. for the judge? I mean, how does that normally Yeah, I think, I think Veronica is that probably... heavy. Veronica, what was your experience with that? You weren't a professional form filler outer type person. 
So how did that all work for you when you went to court? Part of our court training focuses on equipping the advocates, like I said earlier, and one of the units is on just court reporting. So we teach our trainees, I was taught, how to write a court report, and then we have staff, our case supervisors, that will guide the advocates on how to do it properly, follow protocol. Our CASAs submit court reports at least twice a year, and uh, their court report is filled with valuable information that comes from the sources, the therapist, the foster home, the school. So to fill out a court report, you will talk to all those people and then it bring like the you facts. you have to do a lot of chasing to get all of the forms in. Is that half the, the battle? To well, make sure that because you're involved their- with the child, you over time build relationship with the team as well. Okay. But it is. Our advocates need to persevere. It's not easy to be uh, in the system for our kids. Mm-hmm. It can be frustrating. And we experience that when we're trying to bring the team together sometimes or try to get information or try to cor- get the correct information. So we're able to help our kids in that way because no one else will do that for them. So we're bringing to the judge this information that is very valuable. We uh, humanize this name and number that comes before the judge only once every six months. And we also include a picture of the child in the court report. And the judges really appreciate that because they can see then the child through the court report. Children not always come to court. They're not required. I would assume you would rather have them not most of the time. Exactly, exactly. Well, they... One, they miss school. Yeah. And another, you know, it's not a pleasant for environment. For, for However, them. they have the right to be there. And um, if they want to be there, they can come in and check in with the judge and see their team, see the, their attorney. In Orange County, uh, most of our attorneys that work with kids will send uh, their legal assistants to meet with the children in the comfort of their home to interview them in preparation for the hearing. But the kids can also come to court and and be their own voice. And when they're older, you know, if they want to do that, that's great because they'll learn to advocate for themselves. But, yes, writing a court report is an essential part of our role, and it does require work. And our supervisors are wonderful at coaching and supporting the the volunteers to do this well. So when we're looking at all the things that have come together, you know, we were talking, Matt, about what happened with you Mm -hmm and how you got involved with this. Mm-hmm. You're now part of the, well, let's go back, Veronica, you're now one of the supervisors. Do you, do you still have a case yourself, or you just empower other people with cases? No, I don't have a case myself. Our, our supervisors, um, we don't carry personal cases. Okay. Yes, I have and, to give up my case. <laughs> then, Matthew, you also, do you have a case now? Or? No, I don't. We, we do have a policy um, that, that staff members can't um, work on cases. I, I think with Veronica and maybe a few other staff members, if they, if they begin um, the mm-hmm. role as a staff member and they already had a case, then we just let that kind of fade out um, and then naturally close when it will. Um, but it could be seen as a conflict of interest um, as a staff member sure. you know, versus being a volunteer. Yeah. Okay, so you're both then empowered other people that are coming into this case. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, what happened afterwards. We've only talked about really what happened with you, Veronica, your very first case coming up, and one or two transition cases right afterwards. I want to get a little more into the nuts and bolts, so that way when if people are listening on, on the air right now and they're thinking, can I do this, what are they really getting themselves into? Because mm-hmm. that's really what I, I want to know. Mm-hmm. It sounds wonderful. It sounds like a great program. 
I want to also know what the what the problems are with the program, so that way there are you know mm-hmm. people can look at this uh, all warts and all. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. With me today is Matthew Wadlinger and Veronica Cincinnati. They are from Casa, which is an organization that helps some of our most at need kids. And we will be right back. The passing of a loved one is a difficult and often sorrowful step in life's journey. The helpful and supportive staff at the Cathedral Memorial Garden Cemetery, located on the 34-acre iconic Christ Cathedral campus, are here to assist you and your family through this transition, offering a central location, serene garden-like grounds, majestic fountains, and a dramatic statuary, all set within the beautiful Christ Cathedral campus. For more information, please visit memorialgardens.christcathedralcalifornia.org or contact 714-489-6102. And welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio. And with me today is Matthew Wadlinger and Veronica Sansonetti from CASA. And before we go any further, I want to make sure I take a moment so I don't forget to thank you so much for coming on, but also to thank you for what you have been doing, both when you first were volunteering and as you've continued uh, to do this on behalf of some of our most at-risk kids in the County of Orange. Thank you. And with kids that are that are from the Diocese of Orange, I no, there are Catholic kids in the program. Yeah. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having us. This is this is an honor to be here, and you know this is a potentially a huge way for us to kind of spread more awareness about our organization. So truly, we're thankful. Well, in our audience, between the two radio stations, the one in San Diego and the one in Los Angeles, we cover all of the Southland. So I'm hopeful that there are people that are listening right now who are interested in this, and if they are, we're going to give out that information again, how they can get more information on the program to see if it really is a fit for them and if they really can make the difference that they would like to make, whether they've had some professional training like you did, mm-hmm. Matthew, or if you're coming at it from just, I'm interested, as you did, Veronica, mm-hmm. uh, how they can successfully empower other children to mm-hmm. get through this very difficult time. Mm-hmm. Matthew, we were talking about your background. I want to go back and revisit a little bit. I mentioned that I, you know, you do some work trying to dig up family members mm-hmm. Uh, people that in some cases it makes some sense to try to see are there other family members out there. I would think they could get sticky. Has it? No, it hasn't. I mean, there, there, there's definitely been times where we've reached out to people and they're like, I want nothing to do with that child. You know, at the end of the day, we have, we have to respect that. But, but what we always say is that the kids have the dignity of someone trying to do this well, work on their behalf. Let's back so, up for a moment. I'm yeah. sure, you know, we, we talk about the, the, the beautiful children that are out there. Mm-hmm. There are some children that are hard to get along with, too. Mm-hmm. They're not the spot of Satan, but they are still. Yeah. It can be difficult, I would assume. You run into those, too. Yeah. But they still need to get through this time. Right. Which is where we, they still need the, the advocates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the and all these kids that we're talking about in the foster care system, they're in, they're in this system, this overburdened and underfunded system because of abuse, abandonment, or neglect, or sometimes all three of those things. And so they're in most need, and sometimes... Yeah. They have the least yeah. real focus. Yeah, yeah. And, and just it, part of our training is to kind of equip people with, you know, what it's like to kind of experience that level of trauma and understanding the behaviors that kind of stem from that. Just well. from a Christian perspective, how is Jesus successfully reaching out to these people? The only way that he is doing it today is through the arms of the people that are involved in this program. Yeah, in in other professionals and other ways yeah. that you can give it. It's not just CASA, um, but but we are definitely providing a channel for people to directly work with one specific child in the foster care system. And so I think that that's one of the more appealing aspects of our organization is that is that it's not a one off 
volunteer opportunity. It's not a casual relationship. This is a court order that you're getting. You're going through 30 hours of training, and then you're building a relationship with this one child, and you're being um, supported, supervised by our staff as well. Have you had any any good success stories from you, Matt? Yeah, yeah. So, again, when I started, I was in charge of our Family Connections program, and this is how I really got hooked on our mission and, and why I'm still there today um, after starting in 2010. So um, the very first case that I got within this program, I decided I was going to work it myself. It was going to be uh, something that a volunteer would typically take on doing this family finding work. But for the first one, I wanted to kind of experience it myself. Um, so the referral was for a 16-year-old girl who was biracial. Um, her casa, casa's name was Linda, and casa, and casa Linda was on the case for about six months. And so um, on our outings with this youth, um, we'll call her Holly, Linda realized that Holly never spoke about her dad. She never spoke about any paternal relatives. She only knew of her mother. Um, that was the only family member in her life. Mom had a drug addiction. Um, where she would rehabilitate and then relapse. Um, and this happened multiple times. And I don't even know if it had happened once yet, but over the first six months, Casa Linda was like, okay, well, you know, she's never spoke about her dad. I've never read anything about dad in any of these court reports um, that I've reviewed since I took on the case. Let's make a referral to this program and kind of explore that a little bit. And so that's where I started was with that paperwork of, okay, we're going to look into dad. And so myself and the Casa Linda, we went over to social services together and we met with the social worker and then she gave us these really thick volumes of paper and kind of gave us an empty cube and was like, you guys can do some research and go nuts in here. And she herself had only been the social worker on the case for a few months at that point. So I don't even think she had been taking the time to review all the paperwork. And that that's not to say that she didn't want to. No, but social workers don't just have one case. Right, right. They've yeah, 30, 40, 60. Exactly. Yeah. And, and they're monitoring the whole family as well that Veronica spoke about, too. Um, so um, myself and Linda, we started going through the files. We started in volume one. We were lucky enough to find her birth certificate, which had her dad's full name in there, uh-huh. his date of birth jotted that down. And then we also, as kind of um, backup supports, um, we were looking into, okay, what did the therapist kind of write about in the margins of some of these papers? You know, who were the people that she connected well with teachers, um, past group home staff members, um, maybe different coaches on some sports teams that she was at. And we found out that she had come into care when she was six years old and she's now 16 is when Linda's working ten with her. years in the system. Yeah, yeah, wow. ten years. And over that ten year period she had six different social workers and six different placements, which isn't uncommon for any of the kids that we're working with. That's so sad that it's so common. Yeah. So then Casa Linda went home and then I went back to the office to kind of start my search into dad. I figured, you know, let's let's start here with with who Linda was after. And prior to this, I should say that uh, we asked Holly, you know, what do you know about your dad? And she said, I know his first name. His first name is Michael. And my mom told me that she, that he's a bad and mean man. So that's all that she knew about her dad. That's all that she knew about her paternal family. So, you know, usually when we're starting these searches, we'll start on Facebook, social media, because it's free and easy. Okay. Most people are on it. Um, Michael had um, kind of a unique last name as well. So type that into Facebook. One person popped up. You know, it looked to be the, about the right age. It was an African-American male. He also had this gap in between his two front teeth that the child had as well. Okay. And then if you're aware, if you use Facebook, there's some people that have kind of open profiles. Yeah, I don't use Facebook. Okay, actually. you don't. No. You don't. Okay, but some of the viewers might, might one of know. those rare people. They, they <laughs> might know what I'm talking about. And, and when I say that it's an open profile and you can kind of like just stalk the person, see all their photographs, see, Ooh. read all about them. And that's what he had. And so um, I was able to kind of go through his stuff. He 
was remarried. He had two young kids. He was living in Oklahoma. He was uh, an associate pastor at his church in Oklahoma. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And it so had if his, he had been a mean man, he's making an attempt at reform. Right, right. And then it had his town name listed as well. So now I had his full name, his town name. Plug that into whitepages.com. Phone number popped up. So no time but the present. This was literally all within the same day of doing this research, going back to the office, getting the phone number, calling dad. And most people don't pick up, you know, the phone when it's not a number that they recognize. Right. But but Dad did pick up the phone. He's uh, a pastor. Doesn't speak <laughs> <his> yeah. <laughs> um, and so I identified who I was and why I was calling him, and he immediately broke down in tears. And he told me uh, the story of when Holly entered the foster care system when she was six years old. Um, the intake social worker reached out to Dad and said, "Your daughter's in the foster care system, and we have um, a prospective adoptive family for her." Um, but before we can move forward with them, we need you to terminate your rights. And dad wasn't in a place in his life personally, professionally. He had had some criminal behavior that had recently happened as well. And so he knew that he wasn't going to be considered. And um, in knowing that there was this prospective adoptive family, he kind of thought, you know, this is God's plan for my child, you know. Yeah. And so he um, got the paperwork sent to him and he terminated his rights. And then what had happened was within a few months, the um, adoption fell through. This kid changed social workers, and no one reached out to dad to let dad him know that terminated his rights. rights. Yeah. yeah, so he was under the impression that for um, the last ten years, his daughter was growing up in a loving, supportive, oh, adoptive wow. home. His daughter was growing up in the foster care system, and again, I'll reiterate: six oh. different social workers, six different placements, and the only person, family member that she had was her mother, who would relapse on drugs and alcohol, and then rehabilitate and relapse and this happened multiple times and so now we had dad and um in the first phone call he was very honest and upfront with me about everything that had happened with him yeah. gave me all that information and and also you know he had really turned himself around you know and was doing a lot of good things over the last 10 years um, we ran background checks on him did some reference checks um, presented everything to the judge the attorney the social worker and um, and he got cleared um, to have a visit with the kid. Okay. Um, so we were able to fly um, dad and his new wife um, out to California over Thanksgiving. Uh, Holly's 16 at this time in her junior year of high school. And we had um, a three-day visit. And myself and the social worker and the CASA, we all took turns being there for the visit. We didn't want to yeah. – we, we always wanted to have someone there to kind of monitor and help facilitate. You know, dad had two young boys of his own, but, like, you know, it's a whole different thing with a 16-year-old girl and especially one that's been in care. Okay. And so um, that visit went really well. And, you know, I think the automatic question that we all had was, like, okay, do you want to move in with dad? You know, what are you thinking? And, and the kid was very just – upfront about the fact that, no, you know, I, I've been growing up here in Orange. I want to finish out high school with my friends and family here. Um, so we were able to schedule additional visits over the course of the year. We flew her out to Oklahoma over her spring break in her junior year. She met um, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, a great grandmother that was still alive. Some siblings. Yep. And then this whole congregation at her father's church that was really excited to meet her as well came back from that visit, you know, super excited about all the family members. And then we just continued to kind of massage those relationships over her senior year of high school. And then I was there at her high school graduation 
sitting next to her father. He flew into John Wayne Airport, and immediately following the graduation, we had a big kind of lunch for her that the casa was there for. Um, and some of her friends. And then I drove Holly and her dad to John Wayne Airport, and this kid left the foster care system oh, after wow. her high school graduation and moved in with her Went dad. Back with dad. Yeah, in Oklahoma. And then since then, she graduated from community college. She recently got engaged. Her and her fiance are now both living with dad. So, you know, new problems and struggles to work with, but they're, but they're doing it. <laughs> yeah, and, um, she's got a life. <laughs> right. And what, and what I always kind of tell people about this story is that this is the power of the casa. This kid was in care for 10 years. Casa Linda was on the case for six months. Casa Linda was the first person to kind of wave her hand and say, what about dad? What about the paternal family? If the Casa was not involved in this case, this child's life would be drastically different. And there's no law saying that a kid can't go back and live with their drug-addicted or alcoholic parent, abusive parent, once they leave foster care. That was probably going to be the outcome for Holly. She didn't have or know anyone else. And because of this Casa, her life is forever changed. Wow. I mean, if you really wanted a reason to be involved in CASA, there it is. You've got the ability to really make a difference and to to give this life back to this child and to the dad. Mm -hmm. Just what a wonderful example of how you can make a difference. If people are interested again in getting involved, they've heard a little bit more from when we gave the information last time. How can they get more information? What's the website again? Yep. So CASAOC.org, C-A-S-A-O-C.org, and you can just click on the volunteer button. Or um, you could email volunteers at org or call us at 714-619-5151. That number again is? 714-619-5151. First of all, again, I want to thank you for not only coming in, but for all that you do for all of these kids. And I'd like to end us with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Dear Lord, we ask you please to bless this organization and the people that are involved with it all of the people, those who are rendering service and those who are being served, that all might truly benefit, not only because of the service being rendered to children who are there, but those who are rendering it, that they would truly experience your love and your mercy and your joy in how they encounter you in the love around them. Be with all the people who are involved with CASA and be with the people who are thinking about getting involved with CASA, that they would be moved by you to truly act in your name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Again, thank you for coming in, uh, Matthew and uh, Veronica. You are listening to Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Rick Howick, your host. It is a pleasure to come to you every week. If you would like to hear this again or recommend it to somebody, you can go to occatholic.com and go to our uh, podcast page. We have uh, several uh, radio programs that we do. ROC Catholic Radio is one of those. Click on that, click on this particular show, and you can send it to anybody that you'd like to. Again, Orange County Catholic Radio, and we will see you again next week. If you have never experienced the beauty of the Sistine Chapel, now is your opportunity. From April 13th through the end of the year, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel Masterpiece will be on exhibition in the Cultural Center on Christ Cathedral Campus, brought to life using a special photographic technique that reproduces the look and feel of the original paintings. You will be given a chance to engage with the artwork in ways that were never before possible. For the first time ever, you can explore the artwork at your own pace and admire the art from a distance that is physically impossible to achieve in the actual Sistine Chapel. 
This is an extraordinary opportunity to gain a new perspective on some of the most famous artwork in history. It also provides an incredible chance for inspiration as well as reflection on the purpose and meaning of the work. For more information about this unique exhibit and to purchase your tickets, visit SisteneExhibit.com. Student and group ticket pricing is available. Visit SisteneExhibit.com. That's SisteneExhibit.com. And awaken your curiosity to the innovative and unique interpretation of Michelangelo's timeless masterpiece.